Uh, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 with me. Let's turn there, just a reminder to be in prayer for vacation Bible camp this week. It's an exciting opportunity that we have to minister to youth, and our church has been very blessed with, with children and, and young people, and it's a great stewardship, and so I encourage you uh, to, to be uh, in prayer for that this week as we, as we seek to be good stewards of the wonderful resource that, that God has, has entrusted to us. Luke chapter 6, uh, we're looking this morning at verses 12 through 16 and the choosing of the 12 disciples by Jesus, and if you would stand with me as we read this together in Luke chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 12. I'm reading from uh, the English Standard Version. Verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture that tells us of these 12 men whom you appointed to be your messengers, your envoys. We pray that you would strengthen us as you've entrusted us with ministries as well. Pray for this week as we are your messengers to the group of children that you'll be providing us with this this week. We pray for the workers at Vacation Bible Camp. We pray for friends that we'll be bringing as we talk to them about your son, Jesus. And we pray that uh, children this week would place their faith in your son, Jesus, if they've not already trusted in him. We pray that other children will be strengthened and encouraged as they think about you and your great love for them that was demonstrated in the provision of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus' 12 disciples form the nucleus, the core group of a movement that transformed the world. These 12 men accomplished an amazing task in a very short period of time, and in the the 2,000 years since their ministry, sometimes the temptation in the church has been to overemphasize their role in starting the church, perhaps. Sometimes these 12 men have have literally been placed upon pedestals as statues are erected in their honor. Sometimes uh, relics or little objects that the apostles were said to have owned have have sprung up and and venerated or or worshipped. Sometimes in the history of the church and even today, prayers are offered to these uh, 12 men whom Jesus selected to be his disciples. Scripture, however, presents us with a more balanced view of these men and of their ministry. As we look at Scripture, we encounter a group of men who did indeed love the Lord Jesus Christ, yet at the same time, sometimes were guilty of of various sins. They were argumentative. They were sometimes petty. They were self-centered. Sometimes their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ wavered and faltered. In short, the 12 disciples that we see presented in Scripture were often like you and me. Here on the 
projector this morning, there's an excerpt of a picture by uh, Rembrandt. It's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And if you, this is just a small portion of that picture. But if you were to see the entire picture, you would see that there are actually 14 men in this boat. Over to the side, you can't see him, is, is Jesus. And then there are the 13 disciples. And then there's a 14th man in the picture that art critics believe is Rembrandt himself. He's the man, he probably, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a man here at the, from your perspective, the left-hand portion of the screen, and his, one of his hands is on his hat, and the other hand is holding a rigging, and that face is the face of Rembrandt. And art critics believe that he placed himself in the boat with the other disciples to illustrate his need for the work of Christ in his life as well. The 12 disciples needed Christ's transforming work in their lives in order to be the men that God had called them to be, in order to do the ministries that God had called them to. And Rembrandt was saying that he needed God's transformative work in his life as well. These 12 disciples would do amazing things in, Jesus's, in, in the ministry that Jesus equipped them with. But as we look at their lives, we see that he had to do things in order to enable them to do those ministries. What we're going to do this week and next is look at the lives of these 12 men and see how Christ enabled them to do the ministries that he called them to do. There are some important things that I believe we'll learn as we look at these 12 men. Let me give you five things that I think we learn. The first thing that I think we learn as we look at the lives of these 12 men is that, first of all, we learn that, that Christ calls a variety of people to follow him. He's going to call fishermen. He's going to call a tax collector. He's going to call people who are wealthy, people who are not wealthy. He's going to call religious, uh, people who are very religious. He's going to call people who are irreligious. He's going to call political activists. He's going to call people to follow him from a wide variety of backgrounds. That's one thing we learn about as we learn about these 12 disciples. Another thing we learn as we look at the lives of these 12 men is we learn that the ministries that we're called to are not always equal in terms of their prominence or their prestige. Sometimes Jesus is going to call us into the ministries of, of the Peters, the, the people who serve as, as leaders of a group. Other times he's going to call us into to less prominent roles. All ministries, though, that God calls us to, we are to enter into with joy and and eagerness, but they're not always going to be equal in terms of their prominence or their prestige. A third thing that I believe we learn as we look at the lives of these disciples is that growth in godliness is a long process. A growth in godliness or, or sanctification is a long, sometimes a very slow process. As we look at the lives of the disciples, we see their, their growth in godliness and how God transforms them. In a church, there are several dangers that sometimes present themselves as we think about holiness. One danger is to fail to have a high standard of holiness. God's standard of holiness is very clear. We are to be holy as God is holy. And a church must always keep in front of it that goal, that idea of, of perfect obedience as God is holy, so you and I are to be holy. And anything less of that standard is not what we desire for ourselves and for one another. Yet at the same time, an equally uh, dangerous position to take is, is not recognizing the slow growth 
and holiness that we are all undergoing. We recognize as we travel this journey of faith with one another that sometimes it's a very long process of growth and holiness. Imagine if this afternoon my daughter Hannah, who's learning to play the piano, said, Daddy, I want to play for you, and she began to play the piano for me. And I said, eh, Josh, Josh Urban, Mr. Josh, really plays the piano well. Frankly, Hannah, your playing is a little uninspired. How, how damaging would that be to fragile little esteem, right? Instead, I say, Hannah, that's a great job. You are playing extremely, I am excited about your ability as a nine-year-old to sit down and do things on the, the, the piano, the keyboard there that daddy certainly can't do. We recognize as we are in ministry and fellowship with one another that this process of growth and holiness is a long process. We learn that as we look at the 12 disciples. Another thing we learn, I believe, as we look at their lives is we learn the importance and the cost of discipleship. Jesus chooses these 12 men to be his disciples, and it's a long, important, costly process that they go through in this discipleship process. We learn that as we look at their lives. The fifth thing that I believe we learn is we learn that effectiveness in ministry is dependent not upon the one who is called, but upon the one who does the calling. And it's this last point that I really want us to focus on these next two weeks. Let me say it again. As we look at the lives of these 12 disciples, what we see is that effectiveness in ministry is not ultimately about the person who's called, but it's about the one who does the calling. Our effectiveness in ministry is not dependent upon ourselves ultimately, but upon Christ who calls us and equips us for the ministries that he calls us to. What I want to do in our time this morning, this first week as we look at these 12 disciples, what I want to do is look at a little bit of the context in verses 12 and 13, and then I want to begin by looking at each of the 12 disciples. This morning, we're going to look at the group of the first four disciples mentioned here. Uh, we're going to look at Peter, we're going to look at his brother Andrew, and then we're going to look at the brothers James and John. So let's go ahead and dive into the text here. Beginning in verse 12, it tells us this, "'In these days he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray.'" And all night he continued in prayer to God. And so before Jesus selects his 12 disciples, he begins a, it by a time of prayer. All night he's praying there on the mountain, asking God for his strengthening of these men that he's going to choose, I believe. Then verse 13 says, when day came, he comes down from the mountain, he calls his 12 disciples, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And so there's this larger group of men that are following Jesus. He calls them all to him. We're not sure exactly how many that is. And then Jesus Christ sovereignly selects 12 from among this group to be his apostles or his special envoys and, and messengers. He appoints these people to be his 12 disciples. We see here that Jesus, after this time of prayer, has designated these men for a special ministry. And it's these men that are going to serve the as the foundation, the core group, the nucleus of the movement that will transform the world. And then Luke lists these 12 men. Now, there are four times in Scripture that these 12 men are listed. Matthew chapter 10, the, the disciples are, are listed. Mark chapter 3 is the second time. Here in Luke, we see them mentioned. Then also in Acts chapter 1, the 12 disciples are, are listed out. Something kind of interesting about the list, it seems like 
they, they are listed in three groups of four men. Although there's some variation in the way that the names appear in, in some of these lists, you always have the same group of four men listed first, the same group of four men listed in that second group of four, and the same group of men that make up the final four. There's also something else interesting about the list that is consistent. Peter is always mentioned first. Philip is always mentioned first in that second group of four. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, is always mentioned first in that final group of four. And what it seems like is that there was kind of one representative that stood as, as prominent in that, in that subgroup. What is also true about the disciples is that first group of four, the, the men that are always the first four mentioned, Peter, his brother Andrew, and James and John, served as kind of the, the core group within that core group. They're the, the big four, if you will. And I want us to spend our time this morning looking at their lives and understand how Jesus transformed their lives in order to use them for the ministries that he'd called them to. And as, I look at each of, as we look together at each of their lives, we're not going to present a full chronological, biographical sketch of their lives. We're just going to look at some, some snippets that, see, that help us see how Christ transformed them so that he could equip them for the ministries that he wanted them to do. We're going to begin here by looking at Simon. Look at verse 14. It says, Simon, whom he called, whom he named Peter. Jesus calls Simon and he names him Peter, which, which means rock, telling Peter throughout his ministry with Peter that he's going to be the rock upon which he builds his, he's going to be the rock upon which his, his ministry is established. A Peter, I call here the, the broken leader. Uh, Peter was a, a man who was a fisherman, as we've looked at before. He was from the town of Bethsaida, and at some point he moved a little bit to the east to the town of Capernaum and established his fishing business with his brother Andrew and his partners, James and John, the other two brothers that are mentioned in this group of four people. Peter, the rock, this leader, is a, a person who had some qualities that the world would naturally view as, as qualities that a leader should have. Peter, first of all, was a very moral man. Remember in Luke chapter 5, we looked at Peter's call, and we saw that, that Peter, when he's confronted with Jesus' holiness, what does he say? He says, depart from me. I, I, I'm a sinner. He recognizes his own inadequacies. He has a strong moral sense. In John chapter 1, we see that he's left his, his fishing business in Capernaum, and he's traveled south and where John the Baptist is baptizing, and he's, he's around John the Baptist, and he's listening to his teaching. It's through John the Baptist's ministry that he's introduced to Jesus. And in fact, when he's introduced to Jesus, someone comes to him, his brother, we'll talk about this in a moment, and his brother says this, he says, we have found the Messiah. Uh, Peter's a moral person. He has a, a, a passion, a yearning for the Messiah. And Andrew knows that, and so he communicates this good news to him. Whenever you tell a person we found the Messiah, their excitement level depends on how valuable they view the Messiah. For example, if I were to come to you this week and I was, this morning I was going to say, the United States tied England in the World Cup match they played yesterday, one-to-one. -one. Most of you would say, that's wonderful news. If you're like me, you don't even know what that means. I, I have no idea how significant that is, I don't know what that means next for the United States. I mean, it's a tie, okay? I'll talk to Tony Carbaugh later to help me understand exactly what that means, okay? 
your response to that news is dependent upon how valuable you view soccer or the World Cup. Now, Peter views the Messiah as a very valuable thing. He is in, he's a very religious person. He's left his fishing business in order to go be around John the Baptist, and he's introduced to Jesus, and it's a thrilling thing for him. Peter is a moral person. He's also a natural leader. It's very interesting as you go through the Gospels how the disciples naturally turn to him at times. Peter at one point says, I'm going fishing. And the other guys go, okay, we'll go fishing too. Peter says, uh, no one will fall away from you. And, and the other disciples, it says, agree with him. One time in the Gospel of John, uh, Peter directs the disciple to ask Jesus a question, and the disciple obeys Peter. Peter is a natural leader, and the other disciples naturally turn to him to see how they should behave. Peter's also a naturally assertive person. If you're in Scripture and you're reading through the Gospel accounts and there's a disciple who's named who says something, odds are it's Peter. He's the one who asks the question. He's the one who responds to the questions often that Jesus asks. He's the one who just makes observations. They're walking along and there's a withered fig tree and it's Peter who says, look, a withered fig tree, okay? Peter's the one who's talking. In fact, sometimes we've kind of caricatured Peter as the, the person, the, the apostle with his foot perpetually in his mouth. And certainly there's some truth to that. Peter's often saying some, some rather foolish things, but the reason that it's Peter talking is that Peter's the leader. Peter's naturally assertive. And the other disciples probably would say the same thing if they were the assertive ones who were speaking. Peter, not only is he a moral person, not only is he a natural leader, not only is he assertive, he's also very, very confident. He's a confident person. In fact, kind of, you know the story perhaps, but in Matthew chapter 16, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is asking all the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Matthew tells us various disciples were answering. Verse 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And who is it that responds? It's, It's Simon Peter, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's assertive. He's he's confident in his answer. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter. You're the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so Jesus is affirming him here. And then in verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here's where Peter's self-confidence bites him. Verse 22, Peter took him aside, began to privately rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Jesus has to rebuke him. It's an absurd picture that we see there in Matthew. Peter correcting the teacher. Peter correcting the one that he's just proclaimed as the son of the living God. But there he is, in his confidence, asserting that he knows better than Jesus what his future holds. We also see Peter throughout the gospel, accounts of the last time of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion, Peter boldly, confidently claiming, I will never fall away from you. Peter's a natural leader. People automatically turn to him in a situation. He's assertive. He's confident. He's overconfident. 
And Jesus, because he loves Peter, is willing to break Peter. We see that breaking process begin in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, Peter is told this by Jesus in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus has told Peter, Peter, you're going to fall away. My prayer for you is you will be able to maintain your faith. And when you turn back, that you'll be able to strengthen others. That's, Christ is telling him that's what's going to happen. And how does Peter respond? Peter responds thusly. He says, Lord... I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter is so confident in himself. He's a natural leader. He's assertive. He's confident. He's overconfident. His confidence is in himself. So Jesus allows Peter to be broken against the rock of his own pride and self-confidence. He's so confident that he can follow Jesus into anything, and yet, sure enough, throughout the rest of the chapter, we see that he denies Jesus three times. Verse 61, after the final time, it says in Luke 22, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to them, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. Verse 62, the darkest moment of Peter's life, and he went out and wept bitterly. We see the restoration of Peter at the end of the, book, the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's come back to, the, to be with his disciples. In verse, they have breakfast together there at the, the sea on the shore. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Watch what's, watch what's happening here. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter has been a natural leader, but he had to be broken by Jesus so that he could be a follower as well as a leader. Look what happens next. He says, Truly, truly, Jesus says to Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are, but, uh, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Listen to this. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, you've had a great deal of confidence. You're a natural leader. You're assertive. You're confident. Now, as a leader, as a shepherd of my sheep, it's time to be a follower. And did Peter learn his lesson? Well, we look in 2 Peter, an epistle that he wrote shortly before his martyrdom. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, 
verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were strained like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, before his martyrdom, was prepared to follow Christ even into death. John 21 assures us that Peter did die a martyr's death, and tradition says that Peter watched his own wife crucified and then was crucified himself. And again, according to tradition, it was upside down. He asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Here's what we learn from the life of Peter, the application from Peter's life. Jesus breaks the proud so that he can use the humble. Jesus breaks, crushes, destroys our pride so that he can use us in our humility. This morning, perhaps God is breaking you in some ways. Perhaps God is, is breaking you against the, 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 the stone of your own pride, and your own self-confidence, your own self-reliance, and he's doing that so that he can use the humble person. Peter doesn't start off as a leader that Jesus can use in any meaningful way because he is so self-confident, self-confident in his own understanding of the Messiah. He's self-confident in his own understanding of the Messiah's mission, and Jesus has to crush him so that he can use him. When I was a freshman in college, I had a great deal of, of confidence about my, my writing abilities. I was very confident as I, I entered one of these classes, especially as a, as a class on federalism, a, a government class, and I thought, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean up in this class. I love the Federalist Papers, love reading this stuff, love writing this stuff. This is going to be a breeze. And I turned in my first essay, and, and she was, Dr. Bundy was passing the essays back out a few days later, and I thought, wonder if she's going to embarrass me in front of everyone, talk about how great my essay was, and I'm not wearing the nice shirt today, oh well. This is what, I, I look at the top of my paper, and there in, in red pencil is the number 78, C+. Plus. And Dr. Bundy, with her amazing wit, had written a little note on the inside of my paper. She said, Mr. Bennett, very formal Dr. Bundy was, Mr. Bennett, this would have been an excellent answer to a different question. <laughs> that stuck with me. That stuck with me my entire college career and beyond. And it caused me to be a much better student, to really carefully read the instructions and the writing prompts and to, 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 to push on even further. The negative comments, the negative events in our lives sometimes are more helpful than the positive ones. And perhaps... God is using a family situation in your life. Perhaps God is using some, some sin that you're struggling with. Perhaps there's some things with your children or a close friend that, that just seem like they're, they're just terrible, terrible events in your life. And my encouragement to you is don't run from those things. Allow those to be things that a sovereign Lord uses in your life so that he can make you into the disciple he desires you to be. Jesus breaks the proud so that you can use the humble. That's Simon, that's Peter, the broken leader. Now let's look next at his brother. The next name on our list is Andrew, his brother. Andrew is the, the quiet evangelist. You know, it's interesting, he's introduced here as, as uh, Simon's uh, brother, as Peter's brother, and that's 
always generally true of him at least. He's part of that, that big four, the first four groups of the, the first four disciples in the group, but very often in that group of the first four disciples, it's Peter, James, John, oh, and Andrew. And oftentimes when we see Andrew listed, it's, 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 it's uh, or when we see uh, the, the four disciples talked about, uh, Andrew's put at the end, or, or sometimes he's just omitted in, in weird ways, or mentioned as uh, always as, as uh, Simon's brother, as Peter's brother. For example, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, he's talking about, uh, about Andrew, and he says, Andrew, you know, Peter's brother. Then just a couple chapters later, John chapter 6, uh, Andrew, Peter's brother. And if you're Andrew reading that, you're like, John, I think people get it. I'm Peter's brother, okay. He's quiet. Sometimes there's events where we, we're pretty confident that Andrew was there, but he's not mentioned, and the other three are. For example, we looked at Luke chapter 5, and looking at parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, it's events that we think that Andrew was there as well. The other synoptic writers, the other gospel writers, place Andrew there, but Luke doesn't mention him. It's Peter, James, and John. There are times where Andrew is intentionally left out of an event. There are times where Jesus takes James and Peter and John and, and leaves Andrew. For example, as he's heal, healing Jairus' daughter, it says that he took only Peter, James, and John with him into the, into the house. You can imagine Andrew just kind of, oh, I'll, I'll wait out here, guys. You know. Mount of Transfiguration, who does Jesus take? Peter, James, and John. But you know what? Nowhere in Scripture do we have any instance of Andrew complaining about his position. In fact, Andrew, among these, the big four, Andrew's the only one of these men who never has anything negative written about him as an individual. James, John, Peter, they're all rebuked, never Andrew in the gospel accounts. In fact, every time we see Andrew by himself, operating alone, you know what he's doing? He's introducing people to Jesus. John chapter 12, some Greeks come to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus, and Philip's like, I don't know, and who does he go to? Andrew. Andrew, these guys want to see Jesus. What should I do? Andrew says, let's take them to Jesus. <laughs> Introduces them to Jesus. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, the, the boy with the loaves and the fish. Who brings him to Jesus? It's Andrew. But I believe if you were to ask Andrew who the most important person he introduced to Jesus would be, he'd probably relate to you the events in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Andrew's following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Andrew follows Jesus, and then it says in verse 41, or let's say verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. John 1.41 says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew, every time we see him in Scripture operating independently, he's introducing people to Jesus. He's the quiet evangelist. He's not flashy. He's not prominent like Simon. He's, anytime you mention him in Scripture, you've got to say, oh, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Andrew, who is Peter's brother, the big guy. But there's no indication that Andrew viewed his role as any less important than anyone else's. Here's the application that I think we see as believers from Andrew's life, the quiet evangelist. I think we see that Jesus uses the meek in mighty ways. 
Jesus uses the meek in the kingdom of God in mighty ways. John MacArthur, as he's talking about Andrew's life, he mentions a man named Edward Kendall as a good example of an a modern or a, a contemporary a, uh, an example of an Andrew. Edward Kendall in 1855 was traveling to Holmes's shoe store, and the mission that Edward was on was to talk to one of his one uh, a young man about the condition of his soul. Kendall writes this later. He says, I was traveling to the shoe store. I, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought, maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, they might taunt this young man and, and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over it all, I, I realized I had passed the store without noticing. Then... When I found that I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and, and have it done with. <laughs> he was so nervous about talking with this 19-year-old man. Well, they found the 19-year-old man in the back storeroom of the store. The young man's name was D.L. Moody. <laughs> and there, Edward Kendall introduced D.L. Moody to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he did it with faltering words. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not all going to be D.L. Moody's. God doesn't need that many D.L. Moody's, but we can all be Edward Kendall's, introducing our friends and family to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a passage that I think is very relevant as we think about Andrew, the quiet evangelist, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, he said, consider your calling, brothers. Think about your, your calling. Not many of you were wise, prominent, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, listen to this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God use the meek and mighty ways? I believe it's so that he will receive the glory. Many of us, or the, the reason that many of us are not called to, to prominent ministries, perhaps, is because it would be so difficult for us to make sure that God receives the glory. So God uses the meek, he uses the lowly, uses those who are not wise according to this world so that he can receive the glory. Jesus uses the meek, the Andrews, in mighty ways. That's Andrew, the quiet evangelist, and Peter, his brother. Now let's look at two more brothers. James and John are the next two on Luke's list here in Luke chapter 6. James is the son of thunder, this James is not the author of the epistle of James that you see in the New Testament. He's not Jesus' half-brother. Uh, he's James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, is most likely from a very wealthy family. He and John, it said, are, have uh, several boats that they've hired out. They have some, some hired servants that they have as well. They're well-known in some, some very prominent circles. And so Zebedee, their father, is most likely a very prestigious man. They're from a prestigious, wealthy family. James and his brother John are not only wealthy and prominent, these guys are passionate. <laughs> these are passionate dudes. 
Mark chapter 3, you know what Jesus says as he meets James and John, or what nickname he gives them? Sons of Thunder. <laughs> I think it was kind of a little bit of a chiding, gentle reminder that they needed to kind of rein it in sometimes. These guys wanted to take the kingdom of God by force and by storm. And because of their passion and their great zeal, James, the son of thunder, sometimes misses out. He sometimes fails to really understand the essence of Jesus' ministry. Look at Luke chapter 9, just a couple chapters over. And we're actually going to spend a look at two events in Luke chapter 9 as we look at James and then as we look at John. Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 51 Okay, this is a good example of James being the son of thunder, this passionate, zealous person. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus, uh, beginning at this point in the Gospel of Luke, we'll talk about this more when we get to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and following. But Jesus, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, focuses his attention on the cross, this mission of mercy. And as he sets his attention on the cross and begins traveling toward the cross, the Samaritans fail to, to welcome him because his eyes are set on Jerusalem. And uh, this is James's response. James is in John, verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, that is when they, they saw the reproach that Jesus was facing at the hands of Samaritans, they come up with a bright idea. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus, would you like us to handle this? We know that you're sent from God, and so would you like us to ask God for fire to consume these people? James fails to understand Jesus' mission of mercy here, and Jesus, the text tells us, rebuked them. You guys don't get it. You're zealous, you're passionate, I give you this, sons of thunder, but you don't understand my ultimate ministry here. You know, I've been, since moving here 10 years ago, faced with a very difficult decision. We left Texas, the home of the Texas Rangers, and we moved to central Illinois where passions are divided between the Cardinals and the Cubs. And so we've been wrestling with this question, are we Cardinals fans or Cubs fans as a family? And uh, this last week, or last several weeks, some events have, uh, have transpired to make me much less favorably inclined toward the animal, the cardinal. So I'm not sure what that does toward my, my baseball affinities. But there's this cardinal around the church offices that is uh, very angry with our, rear, with our side view mirrors. He is very aggressive towards them, and he comes up, and he, he pecks at them, and he sits on our cars and gets them all messy, and he runs at the windows. He is one aggressive, passionate cardinal, and he's very angry at his own reflection. Okay? That is one zealous bird, but it's useless aggression. He's passionate about something that doesn't even exist. James is a son of thunder, He's passionate about silly things sometimes because he fails to understand the essence of Jesus' ministry. We see another example of that in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, as is, is Jesus is, is uh, interacting with, with James and John's mother, the mother asks Jesus if her sons, she says, can these two sons of mine sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, you don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The others are indignant that James and John would, would be this self-serving They should have known they're the sons of thunder. They're very passionate. They're very zealous about themselves. But listen to how Jesus turns it around. He says, uh, you know how the Gentiles exercise authority, verse 26? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is First, who is prominent in the kingdom of God? It's the one who lays down his life for others. And did James get that message? Acts chapter 13 tells us that yes, indeed, James got that message loud and clear. I'm sorry, uh, Acts chapter 12, it says that Herod, the king, about that time laid, listen to this, violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword. Why James? It wasn't Andrew who got killed with the sword. Andrew's the quiet guy. My suspicion is that James was still a son of thunder. (laughs) And when Herod wants to attack the church, who does he attack? He attacks the prominent guy. a guy who's zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ and not himself anymore. And I like what's happened in James's life. He's gone from being the one who demands the position of prominence to the one who becomes the first apostle that we know who's martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think we learn about from the life of James. The the application for us is, is this, that Jesus... Jesus turns the passions of the fervent for his purposes. Jesus turns the passions of the fervent for his purposes. Sometimes we're like that, that cardinal, we're like Don Quixote, tilting at windmills, fighting useless battles. We're, we're aggressive, we're, we're passionate, we're selfish, we're foolish. The church doesn't need a room full of people shouting their own names. What the church needs is people who are passionate for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus can take our hearts and turn them so that we're passionate for him, as our passion for Jesus increases, our passion for ourselves decreases, it diminishes, and Jesus can turn those passions for his glory and his purpose. And I believe that's what happened in James's life. He goes from being the disciple that demands a seat at of prominence at the right hand of the Father uh, to the apostle who in his passion and fervor for Jesus is the first one martyred. That's James. Let's look now at John. In John we see the, the loving shepherd. Sometimes as you look at artwork depicting the apostle John, you see kind of a, uh, a youth. They almost make him, give him kind of feminine features. Not very appropriate. Remember, He's one of the sons of thunder. This is a tough dude, too. And we see this also in Luke chapter 9. Remember, he's right there with his brother saying, Jesus, is it time for uh, the barbecue yet here in Luke chapter 9? But right before that passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 49, John says this to Jesus. 
John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. That is, he's not a part of this circle right here. Therefore, we tried to re- we stopped him. And Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And then we have that other story that we just looked at a moment ago with James. John, in the Gospels, is presented oftentimes as a very uh, arrogant, um, passionate person who is unwilling to, to see in a, very, in a loving way, the value of other people. He's a disciple who's passionate about truth, but doesn't have an equal passion for people. What he needed was growth and love. What he was was intolerant, harsh, quick to judge, ready to bring down fire on people. Jesus rebukes him. And did John learn his lesson? Well, I believe Scripture indicates that he did. As he wrote the Gospel of John, he didn't even mention himself by name often. He would just refer to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. John humbled himself, developed not just a passion for truth, but a passion for love. Now, he never stopped having a passion for truth. In fact, if you look up one of the Greek words for truth and you do a search to see how often it appears in the New Testament, guess which three epistles use the term truth most often proportionally for, the, for their length? First John, Second John, Third John. The guy loved truth. <laughs> and he didn't waver in his love for truth. But if you do a search for one of the words for love, what epistles do you think turn up most frequently, that word occurs most frequently in? First John, Second John, then Third John is the fifth most frequent. The Gospel of John uses the word love and the word truth more than any other Gospels. John was passionate for the truth and through the sanctifying work of his Savior became passionate about love as well. In fact, in John chapter two, or Second uh, John, towards the end of the Bible, John writes this as he's communicating the importance of, of both love and truth. He says, uh, verse verse four of Second John, he says, "I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father." But now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. John's rejoicing at their walking in truth, and now he's asking that they grow in their love for one another. He goes on and says, he says, uh, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. John is passionate about the truth. He's concerned that they would fall away from the truth, but at the same time, he has a great love for the believers and urges others to have that love as well. Here's what I think we learn about from John, the application for us. Jesus fills his followers with hearts that are full of both love and truth. All of us tend to tilt in one of two directions, right? 
Some of us really emphasize in our natural state love and, and concern for others. Some in our natural state uh, emphasize truth and the importance of truth. And uh, I have tended toward to emphasize truth in my, in my life as you look at my, the course of my, my life. I've, I've sometimes gravitated more in the truth realm, which actually if you're going to fall in one of two areas, that's the better one to fall into, right? I'm kidding, right? We all tend to think that about ourselves, that if we're going to err, the, way, err, the side I err on is better than the side other people err on. In fact, in college, uh, my parents uh, were very concerned about my pursuit into ministry because of this issue. They felt, you know, you, you understand truth and you love truth, but we're not sure about, do you love love? So it was an area that I had to really examine in my own heart. There was one occasion that I was home with my parents, and uh, my, my dad and I kind of got into a, a discussion, argument on a, a doctrinal issue. And I, I can't even remember exactly what the doctrinal issue was, but I was, I was very upset and, and, and vehement about uh, how, how uh, passionate I believed my position, and, and it, it got heated. This is whenever Whitney and I were, were dating at the time, and she, um, she observed, you know, in her quiet Whitney fashion, our, our family's uh, intense discussion, mostly my intense discussion. And uh, by God's grace, you know, I, I was pulled, you know, confronted with my sin of, of pursuing the truth without love, and I, I repented, and, and something was said to Whitney like, hey, sorry, Whitney, the, you had to, to see that or whatever, and she goes, oh, it's no problem. I had his keys, so we weren't leaving, you know. Uh, God puts people in our lives that are going to teach us and force us to, to be more loving or to be more focused on truth for truly following our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have a passion for truth. We're going to be, want the, the truth to be taught, and we're going to want others to, to follow in the truth. We're going to recognize the danger of failing to follow the truth. But as we pursue that with a, with a, with a passionate fervor, we're going to simultaneously recognize that, that Jesus is love. And as we pursue truth, if we're not pursuing in love, we're not pursuing Jesus. Jesus fills his followers' hearts with love and with truth. Look, here's what we see as we look the lives of the disciples. As we look at the lives of these men, we see that effectiveness in ministry is dependent not upon the one who's called, but upon the one who does the calling. It's Jesus who takes Peter from being an an arrogant leader to a broken leader. It's it's Jesus who uses Andrew, the quiet evangelist, to to bring people to himself. It's it's James who who becomes the the son of thunder for God's glory. And it's John who becomes not just the, the truth shepherd, but the loving shepherd guiding Christ's flock in love and truth. How is God breaking you? How is he molding you? How is he equipping you? The equipping work of Jesus Christ in your life is essential for you to do the ministry that he's called you to perform for his glory. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the ministries you've called us to. We recognize that it's you who both wills and works within us for your good pleasure. As we look at the various backgrounds of these men, we pray that you would equip us to follow you in similar fashion. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.